Welcome to Hort Culture, where a group of extension professionals and plant people talk about the business, production, and joy of planting seeds and helping them grow. Join us as we explore the culture of horticulture. Hello, everybody. Uh, if you keep letting me do all the intros, everyone's going to sound like this is just my Alexis's podcast. But I'm actually here with Ray, Josh, and Brett, uh, and we are, you know, just a bunch of plant peeps talking about cool plant stuff. Thank you for we having know your me plan now, Alexis. Thank you for <laughs> having your me plan. On, your, on your pod. I appreciate Thank you for it. having me on your pod. This is our pod. We are our pod. Our pod. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I like to think of it as Alexis's show. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's never safe. Don't you don't want me to? Do, you never know what tangent I'll go off on. It's our hours. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this group as a whole, we never know which. Um, cot we're going to chase next so we don't know where we're going we may start at one place we're going to end up at a very different place that's pretty par for the course for this group i feel like but, uh, but today what are we talking about guys yeah so today's kite is uh just talking to kind of about soils and how they're the foundation for your new farm uh that you may have or the farm you currently have or the farm you want to have and I know it's a really common question uh, that we get, both of you guys that are on here, Josh and Brett that are on campus, and Alexis and I that are in the field. Uh, we all get questions on this in extension, it seems like, because it is literally a foundation question when people really start to dive into whether they're new or more experienced. One of the most common questions is uh, related to soils, whether it's soil testing or what about the structure of my soil, soil compaction, or is this soil suitable for this crop or that crop? Really common question. And a really important question because obviously they are kind of the foundation unless you're doing some hydroponic growing, which is a whole other <laughs> ball game there. Uh, you know, we all need soil. Uh, it is it is the life of our farms and of our plants. And so if you take care of nothing else, take care of your soil. Uh, that's Now, Alexis. What? Soils are, or dirt is the lifeless substrate beneath our feet. And we're going to treat it as such, are we not? Is that the case? Is it just a, a bag of minerals that's lifeless under our feet, but I guess we should uh, start by talking about our definitions of soil, which is both simple and complex. Okay, mine, I will tell you. Sure, yours, don't, shoot. Don't say dirt to me if we're talking about something to grow plants in. <laughs> I, knew, right? I knew that would get a reaction. I know, it's like fury just built up in my face, uh, but dirt is what you sweep under the rug, right? Dirt dirt is lifeless. Dirt, dirt is not soil. Soil is not just the minerals and these rocks and uh, these types of things. It is, it's also biological. It's alive. And, and you want that. You want live soils. You don't want dirt. If you come to my house, you will find lots of dirt inside. Uh, so I will tell you that ahead of time. But soils is what we want. What about you, Ray? You know, you said something there. You said that it's alive. And I guess a good case in point, and that just now popped into my head like so many ideals, you know. But I was talking to someone the other day about raised bed gardens, and they had noticed something. They had taken a natural mineral soil, and they'd put it in containers, five-gallon buckets to be precise, drilled holes in the bottom for drainage, so that's good. But they noticed that the the soil turned into something that was much akin to concrete, and it led to this really great discussion because they had a biology background, not necessarily soils, but a science background. And we had this discussion of how soil is living. It's it's more than just the parent weathered material. Uh, you take soil that's in its natural column, in its natural environment, 
and you take it out of that environment, you don't do anything else. You take a chunk of soil and take it out of its surroundings and put it in a micro environment like a plastic bucket and it turned into concrete. And they were absolutely fascinated by that. But it led to a great discussion of how soil works as a living system, that it's more than just mineralized and weathered rock material and parent material. It's also bacteria and fungi and everything else. And all of this matters to new and experienced growers as they're making considerations of, 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 you know, what to plant, where to plant and how to nurture their soil, or maybe they're buying a new patch of land, but all of this matters. I don't know if any of you guys have had any other questions, but that was just a great discussion. And it made me think about things too. They just were fascinated that soil turned into concrete. Concrete. They said, we didn't compact it. Uh, that wasn't it. I said, no, no, you just took it out of the soil column and that's how it behaves. It's, it's a living system. Fish out of water. Yeah, yeah. It didn't have any root matter or anything in there. No organic matter much, or it did have some in there, but it became inert, essentially, when all the bacteria died because of the high temperatures in the plastic bucket and some other factors. So, yes, I know soil definitely is not dirt. That is correct. But uh, a common question. What about question you, uh, Josh and Brett? I mean, I guess I, uh, you know, class was pretty indoctrinated into me about how it's uh, the foundation of all agriculture, but so much human activity too. I mean, first structures were all things built out of earthworks. Some of that stuff still goes on today. And, you know, it's a combination of all these different sized particles that create a texture. And then within that, you have all these living organisms that maybe we can't always see with the naked eye, but determine a lot about what that soil can or can't do for us. So there isn't really a great I don't have a, a great poetic definition. It was beautiful. Had- <laughs> it was so beautiful. Yeah, that that was lovely. Uh, the NRCS has one, actually one that's very close to what you just said, Josh. But I, I was kind of curious, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, because that's one of their primary objectives, is working with soils and the protection of that. But uh, their definition literally is the continued capacity of soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains plants, animals, and humans. That's literally the definition that they have on the federal website, but they sort of highlighted that vital living ecosystem. So yeah, yeah, going back to what you said there, Josh, it, it is a it is sort of a, a living uh, system, and we're learning more about it every day. It's not like we know everything that we absolutely need to know about soil at this point in time because of that interaction with things like fungi and, and bacteria. I had a soil scientist there, and that I had uh, in my undergrad studies. And he said something one day that really hit me and stuck with me for many years. He said, if you take a nickel, put a gram or so of soil on that, he said, guess how many bacteria, single-celled bacteria are in that on average when none of us had a clue. And he said over 1 billion, uh, you know, living organisms on that. And that, that, that's, that kind of stayed with me. Uh, and a lot of the research is still ongoing and they're still finding out how that bacteria and fungi sort of interacts in soils. That, that nickel thing sounds like the advanced version of uh, guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. <laughs> I, I believe, you know, and I kind of thought about that. I was like, where's this conversation? He, he pulled a nickel literally out of his pocket and I thought, what is this guy doing? But yeah, it was a great, it was a great demonstration, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. Brent. Something that comes to mind for me is that, so as the, the least soil, inclined person of this nerdy. group for sure. Nerdy. Yeah. Um, I'm so basically I'm the coolest guy here. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what we're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Check out my Wolf economist. Super cool. 
it, it makes me think of the the parallels over the last couple of decades in our understanding of the microbiome for in terms of human health, animal health, and, and the microflora and microfauna that we have and coexist with. And they don't just exist to serve us, but we have grown across time in this coexistential symbiotic relationship with these huge populations of uh, living organisms, small and mighty living organisms. And uh, as far as the cell or the the uh, living things that are in the soil, we talk about trees sequestering carbon. Well, there's a whole lot of carbon sequestered in soils. And so when you are able to reduce tillage and things like that, you can actually help it with carbon sequestration. There's all kinds of implications there, but it just made makes me think of it as this, it's this thing that we have been doing this evolutionary dance with we and a bunch of other species for thousands and thousands of years. And so the, when we come in and disrupt or do something completely differently, or we, we, uh, as in the case of the dust bowl, we just mm -hmm. till and till and till and in places that don't have the structure that maybe they needed in order to sustain that type of intensive agriculture. We're changing that part of that evolutionary conversation uh, and the way that things have been for a while. And so my mind goes to, to those types of things less so than the specifics of the structure. It is a little bit maybe more poetic, but it also makes me think about, so when I go and get a soil test, how do I understand those results? How do I think about that in terms of, okay, I'd like to dance with my soil partner a little bit more respectfully, a little more productively, and hopefully we can maybe even make some money and keep making money and sustain that across time. Um, and so that's that's my entry point into all of this. That that's a kind of a good segue into the the practical nature of soils, which we have to deal with on a daily basis within our system at the university. All of us do, uh, and something we encounter most commonly are soil samples. We work with homeowners. It doesn't give the total picture by any means because the comments that you made, Brad, kind of alludes to that. This is a kind of a complex system that works together. But uh, a soil sample is something that is available at every extension office that I know of. And it's a common way that we interface with home gardeners and commercial producers in learning one aspect about soils as far as what is currently there and available, both the big nutrients, the macronutrients, and there's even tests where we can test for lesser nutrients that are very crop specific. That is a practical way that we sort of interface with soil. But it seems like, uh, like most things within our system, when I'm uh, speaking with uh, especially commercial producers, I want to know the history of the land. I want to know what went on there because that's an aspect of uh, soil that 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 matters. You know, the, what was the crop that was there the year before? Because that'll give us some indication of what may have been drawn off as far as nutrients and removed, or some crop some crops just remove more nutrients than others, and all of that matters. So you once again you have to be a good investigator, even when someone comes in for something as simple to us. I know Alexis, we get this all the time. Being field focused and field facing is, um, you know, we do have to ask questions to get the full as full as picture as possible so that we can give the best results possible because it is just a snapshot of one aspect uh, that we're going to work with that, that, that person, uh, that individual later on. Okay. So, so summarizing a little bit here. So if you are farming, growing, anything going to grow, whatever it is, 
there's a there's a couple things you need you need to know you're going to want to know about about your soil. So one is going to be by doing a soil test, and I would recommend mm-hmm. you don't do the little ones that you get at a big box store. You send this off to a lab. Uh, usually, you know, if they're not free, they're no more than twenty bucks, uh, and you send this off to a lab. Now, land grant universities all have soil testing labs that you should be able to send off a, a soil sample to. And like I said, they're usually all under twenty bucks if they're any cost at all. So you want to get a soil test. So at you uh, here in Kentucky, our soil test from our land grant is going to give you your soil pH. Uh, it's also going to give you your uh, macronutrients, your NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But it's also going to give you things like calcium, magnesium, zinc, some of those micronutrients, you know, lesser needs, but they're kind of um, they're right in the middle. They're still very needed. It's good to know those levels to make sure that we're not really under because there are some crops that really need those and a lot more capacity. And then, you know, based on that, we can give you recommendations from a nutrient perspective, you know, telling us what kind of salts are in your soil, that this is just kind of the the lab work, right? The microscope of it all. But then you also want to know, uh, and it's something that, you know, you necessarily don't need a lab for or even an expert for. You can do this on your own, or of course you can, you know, if you're know your extension agent or or a, a local <laughs> expert in soil, you can uh, work with them. But you want to know your soil t- uh, texture. So that's just the essentially the percentages of sand, silt, and clay that you have in your soil. And here in Kentucky, we have higher clay soils. We have limestone base. We've got more clay. Uh, you can do this by doing what's called the ribbon test. It's very, very simple and it's fun. And if you've got kids, it's a good way to do it. So look up the ribbon test. You, you know, you can do something like that how sticky it is, you know, all these different aspects, how gritty and sandy. Uh, You can also just put some soil in a, you know, mason jar with some water in it and let it sit for a few days and see how it settles out. Uh, And the percentage, you'll see that sand, silt, and clay settle out. And those percentages of the entire jar that each one of those are will tell you a lot about your soil. It tells you how much water holding capacity it has. It ha- tells you how much nutrients your soil can actually hold on to. So we know you've got calcium from your soil test, but we can tell you how available it is based on your soil texture. So those are kind of two things. And then what Ray said, what was there before can be really helpful to know what's going to be available to you this year or next year or 10 years from now. So that's kind of like a of a summary of something you always want to know. And every year, you know, if you're farming uh, and you're doing this, you know, pretty actively, soil test every year. And your soil structure or your soil texture probably won't change that much unless you're adding lots and lots of That's compost. It's one of those things you can't really – Yeah. To a, to a point to you can't change. Yeah. yeah. It's very hard to change. Uh, Which is why we don't – small scale, you can adjust. But yes. Uh, Raised yeah. beds, you know, you can adjust that in a season. I think Josh makes a good point when he uh, scale matters here on a small scale, you can make changes to things like organic matter, which has all sorts of awesome benefits, the addition of organic matter in soils, but it's very hard to do on large scales. Uh, On large scale, we tend to handle that with things like cover crops and that certainly does help. And you can make some just incredible, you know, gains from having things like something as simple as cover crops. And Brett mentioned something earlier, you know, you know, concepts like reduced tillage. It seems like in the, the U.S., you know, we, we've went through this kind of cycle where we, um, you know, because of the times, neither bad nor good, no judgment call here, but because of the times, we uh, used a lot of intensive uh, tillage. 
And then we found out that that had some detrimental effects. So now we're going back even farther in our history and going back to things like cover crops and trying to minimize tillage. And all of that's very uh, interesting to me. And no-till was, it was born in Kentucky, in Christian County, Kentucky, no-till in the U.S. and in the world. It was born in Kentucky. Uh, Reduced tillage, no-tillage came right here from within Kentucky. I hope I'm not upsetting any Western states here. Got them. Yeah, I, I passed a historical marker one day and I stopped. I was like, what is that? It was in the middle of nowhere. It was in Christian County. And it said the birthplace of no-till agriculture. And it was fascinating. But we went through this entire cycle in soils of how we treat soil and where we're at today. Um, but sort of leads in or kind of uh, piggybacks onto some of the things Alexis was saying. So about I got a structure. question. Mm-hmm. Can, so you mentioned um, clay, s- sand, or sand, yeah, silt, and clay. Yeah, sand, silt, and clay. So w- can you just give me the things you would be excited about and things that would be a little bit uh, challenging about a soil type that had one of those predominant? Like if I'm if I'm if I'm a clay boy, you know, and I'm <laughs> I'm a clay boy I'm out clay here boy. in my backyard. Well, I know uh, if you have heavy clay, Brett, you certainly, uh, homeowners would get this. You just don't want to dump sand on it because oh sand plus clay equals concrete. Literally. Like, no, uh, literally it's, tricky. it's concrete. <laughs> I get excited when I see on a sheet of a uh, particle breakdown, one third, one third, one third, sand, silt, clay, which equals loam, which equals usually pretty good soil type. I get really excited about that when it's, uh, that's a rule of thirds. But yeah, uh, and clay, you know, clay is one of those things that's an, to me, an inherent soil property that the foundation clay type of an area cannot be changed. The, 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 the type of clay, there's different types of clay that are present. That's an inherent soil quality. You can't change that, but you can modify it over time. And, and that's something I stress with producers uh, because I usually start with what can you change and what can you not change? And when a person, I don't know, uh, when you guys are working with folks. So, but that's something we look at is NRCS soil maps and you can get gain access to all of those online, but look at those first to see how much sand, how much silt and how much clay equals which soil type, because there's all these classifications or soil types that are out there uh, that, uh, that really do matter whether you're having tomatoes or an orchard or whatever. Yeah. Just to, to interject there, that was something I was wanting to bring up is the resource of the, the USGS soil survey is, you know, a national map that shows soil types down to like a very specific level, you know, not just your sand, silt, clay and loam percentage. Although I think that's one of the most valuable things that is in the place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it also shows kind of what your slope is like and some other characteristics of the soil that can make certain areas, what they call highly erodible and mean meaning, you know, areas that you or that's recommended not to do a lot of cropping or tillage because you're going to lose your soil. But to kind of address Brett's question of sand, silt, clay, the first thing in my mind when I think of, you know, finding out what my soil texture is for an area that I want to crop is how, how water is going to behave when it rains or irrigates and sand, silt, and clay, your percentages kind of they are the heavy influencer of that. So in a predominantly sandy soil, water does not stick around for very long and it's gone almost right away. So it's an area that unless you're getting routine and regular rainfall, you're probably going to need to irrigate. 
and whereas clay is at the opposite end where it holds water for a long time, but it also can hold it so tight that it is not available for plants. So, and isn't there, Josh, a brief description of every soil top on that national resource? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That map will tell you like what is going on with your soil and kind of whether or not it has a propensity to flood, which, you know, more clayey soils tend to be like that. So another thing, because we have a lot of clay here and people tend to think about clay as a negative. I think there's this inherent negativity because when you think about clay, a lot of people who think about, you know, cracked, you know, you're walking around, it's really dry outside. You got these big cracks or clods that are hard like rocks and people say that's clay. And while that's not wrong, um, that's poorly managed clay. I will tell you that clay also holds your nutrients. So new, just like from what Josh was saying, it holds the water, which means it holds the nutrients. And so your plants need those nutrients to be in that water to be able to access it. So if by holding on to that water and having more particles to hang on to that water, you're holding on to more nutrients. So naturally your soils just are more nutrient dense. And so soil is not a bad thing uh, unless it's managed inappropriately. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it takes all three uh, and different people in different parts of the U.S. have learned to manage that. I mean, if something is a mostly sandy soil, we know it's going to be, uh, for the most part, unless the water table is high. If you have a sandy soil, it can be managed, but the nutrient profile is going to be different and how long nutrients stick around in the soil. But speaking of like soil types and soils in general, I'll pose this question to you guys because you guys are a panel of folks that know a lot about things such as this. But But where do you guys start? When someone comes in or you're having a discussion with someone and says, you know, they, they've got pretty good soil, they've got reasonable depth of rock, which is also an inherent soil quality. If they have a shallow depth of rock, we know that we can't change that. So they need to know that up front. But let's say someone's got an average soil and they come into you guys, where do you guys start? What's your logic model in your brain that, that starts clicking when someone talks to you about that, when they say, what can I do in three years, you know, for every single year to make improvements in my soil? What's what's some of your standard soil improvement recommendations for you guys? Well, we've talked about some of them kind of in part already. Well, we've talked about compost, right? I think compost is mm -hmm. like the number one thing people think of and why it's because it's something that is it's kind of, I don't want to say it's easy. I mean, nothing changes in soil overnight. It was created over thousands and hundreds of thousands of years and millions yeah, well, of years, whatever. A thousand years so, to make one inch of soil. Yeah, yeah a thousand years a to make time. one inch of soil. So adding in a couple inches of compost is not going to like reinvent the wheel for you, right? But of course, composting. And there's multiple types, right? There's animal manure composting. There's vermicomposting, which you're doing with worms. There's um, this thing that I'm highly fascinated with and Josh has probably heard of, but uh, a new thing, it's not new, it's very old, but new to me. It's called Bakashi, which is essentially fermentation, composting. You know, there's lots of that. And that's great uh, and can be really helpful in the first season, but it can also be expensive. And when you're doing something on a larger scale than like a raised bed, it can get costly. It also, depending on what type of compost, like animal compost, for an example, in our soils, we ha most of us have very high natural phosphorus levels. So by adding in animal compost, that that compost is naturally high in phosphorus because animals. Uh, and so you're just adding phosphorus and you can tie up a lot of other nutrients by having this overwhelming amount of phosphorus uh, in your soils. And so looking at other way types of compost uh, can be beneficial. But um, 
Josh, what do you, Josh is, knows a lot more about like livestock than I do. If I can just briefly, briefly interject the, even the step before that, when you take your soil tests, mm-hmm. take them from a variety of places on the farm or in the location yeah. and keep those. And, and I, and I would say, think about what metrics, what are the, the points of, of measurement that you're looking to improve or that need improvement. And also don't confuse your soil with a RPG character. You don't have to maximize everything. Everything doesn't yeah. have to be hundred percent perfect. Improvement is, is the name of the game. So that I would just say that, you know, I, I, when we moved in to our place, took a bunch of soil samples and we're able to track across time to see what those things are. It's very easy to accidentally, you know, you operate, work on the work off of them that first year, add your whatever you're going to add and then forget about them, but keep them over time. You can see how, how things are improving. So even in we- your small area, Brett, you guys uh, have a cover crop. I know that, and you alluded to the dust bowl earlier and I, there's all sorts of pictures flying to my mind when, when you, we uh, think about the dust bowl and all the things that came together to make, you know, that situation. But do you guys use a cover crop? cover crops in your area yeah we've done some cover cropping awesome we've done some awesome. composting we've brought in a lot of brown material and uh and all that kind of stuff but i didn't mean to steal uh, josh uh, alexis was kicking it over to you for some other ideas about improving uh improving stuff mm-hmm. well i guess to kind of answer ray's question of you know what do you where do you start with people when they have questions about soil management you know i i definitely suffer from the problem of coming up under ecology where i want to answer every question with it depends or create another at question. At some point, people are going to need an answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> but That's at, a great, great comment. What I generally try to start with is tr- sort of try to get a handle on what sort of scale of management they're looking at because recommendations and answers to where they want to go are going to be very different. Um, you know, if they're talking about 10 acres versus like a quarter of an awesome. acre market. Yes, garden. absolutely. So that's kind of uh, clutch there. And then... Yeah, that that being the key one is what is their scale they want to work with and kind of, you know, sort of what is your goal? What are you trying to get out of this soil that that should kind of lead where they want to go? Like, are they trying to just grow certain horticultural crops? Are they managing it for something else Um, and something else to kind of touch on when it comes to the question of kind of multiple soil samples and looking at soil surveys? The history question is really important, especially if you're if you know on the property there has been an area where let's say like severe disturbances happened like if there is a place where a, a structure was at one point its soil characteristics and everything are going to be wildly different than the soil survey and so that's an area to kind of keep an eye on and to think of as a special case that it is not like what's around it a lot of times that'll be one of those situations where we'll go out on a farm and, and there's a lot of variation. So I go out mm-hmm. and I'm like, what's going on here? And it's maybe a loafing paddock where they had a bunch of horses and I'll take an extra tool, like a penetrometer or something like that. And you go and, and you see, try to find the compaction layers and you find these areas where they have these incredible compaction layers. And um, it's kind of just one of the investigations you do with the variations. Right, right. Yeah, I think that kind of leads back to the, you know, having multiple areas that you take samples from. Um, So where I will start with somebody if we're there together in person is kind of looking at their area of management on a map. I love maps, but, you know, helping them think about ways to divide it up into different management units to pull samples from. 
you know, so that way you're not trying to think of a farm as just one site with one soil, but as like a cluster of different soil textures and places that you might have different goals for, or maybe it's the same goal, but you're managing two different soil textures to try to mm-hmm. get there and to think of them. That's a, that's a good point because we had that sand discussion. So it's uh, you may have different, uh, you know, micro soil sites on a farm, uh, whether it's on the ridge or some, maybe some soils washed down mm-hmm. and it's going to make a difference. Topography plays a big kind of role in that. Yeah. Even. And that's something we, we can't change. That's an inherent quality is slope mm-hmm. of soils. We can't really change that. Uh, he, another thing I'll ask you, I mean, this is kind of selfish. I'm asking you guys questions, questions because I love the insight, but how about this concept of, and I, and I heard this and it's another thing that stuck with me over time that we're not really feeding the soil. When we, when we put down fertilizers, uh, we're, we're, I'm sorry, we're not feeding the plants. We're feeding the soil. Right. And this concept of we should always try to feed the soil. And if you guys ran into that concept or know anything more about that, rather, we're not fertilizing the plants, in other words. We should be thinking about it in terms of we're fertilizing the soil and the soil is feeding the plants. I do. I, I think a breakthrough for me on that when I was when I was working uh, growing vegetables for, for research projects, uh, specifically about carbon and nitrogen cycling and the way that minerals and nutrients are moving in and around plants is this idea of, so when you get that, that uh, soil test, it's a snapshot. And the idea of like, that's what you have on hand today in the soil. And this is broader concept of what uh, the fancy people call plant availability, whether the nutrients are available to the plants right now, you know, it's the dinner that's done, it's cooked, it's ready for you to eat. (laughs) Right. Whereas over time, you're trying to build up thinking of a longer term soil health and feeding the soil and the, all those, the microbe. I realized earlier when I was talking about dancing with the microbes in the soil, that that's like a dirty dancing kind of concept. <laughs> I don't know, there's some kind of bit there. Maybe don't put sandy particle in a corner. Yeah, or... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the, that you're, you're needing to kind of think right now you're needing to think, six weeks from now, you're needing to think six months from now, and you're needing to think years and years down the road. And I, I don't have the knowledge that you all do about that, but that general idea of like immediately available or immediately mineralizable versus things that over time as the soil eats and poops and pees and does all of its fun stuff will become available over time and thinking of it both as a short game and a long game. I don't know if you all talk about it that way or and that way. a couple of you guys have touched on it just because it's there in the soil and it's on a soil test doesn't mean that it's available you can uh, i think alexis did you did you touch on that earlier just because we have soil availability of something like uh, potassium it doesn't mean that the plant's going to be able to take that up that's another interaction of the soil that has to do with this uh, factor of ph and alkalinity uh and some other things. And I've ran into producers, particularly like orchard growers, when we're looking at these long-term perennial crops, AKA apple trees, in this case, they had, they had the nutrients in the soil. They were there, but they were still showing a lot of deficiencies in those plants. And then we get into more advanced testing, like tissue uh, testing with those uh, uh, producers and it yes, it did show a deficiency, and then we investigated farther, and it turned out to be a pH problem, where maybe the pH was uh, wrong on one end or the other, and iron was being released in the soil, and that in turn bound something else. So it's it goes back to speaking to the 
the fact that soil is a system. So sometimes it does depend, Josh. That that's not a bad answer, but it's not one that pleases people. They don't they don't like that. You know, we we need answers here, people. We need answers. Yeah, that's like I think with soil, it goes back to um, that same that same kind of soil ecologist uh, thought process. And and one of the ones that I know says, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And in soil, it's it's all about. There's so many different things, right? We've hit on chemical structure, you know, just all of these different biological things in the soil and don't get overwhelmed by wanting them to be, you know, correct. I think when someone comes to me and says, you know, what, where do I go from here? You know, what do they want to grow? You know, we, we've talked about what's the history there. We look at the soil test, but then what do they want to grow? And then looking at what the soil at the moment has the ability to do. And then how, like Josh said, or like Brett said, to kind of meal, I like think of it like meal prepping, right? Like prepare it now and you're going to eat it on Friday. But in this case, you might be eating it in a year or longer. And we see that a lot with like our organic amendments. They're not readily available to the plant. Uh, those microbes take time. We feed the microbes and then the microbe can feed the plant. Yeah, um, and that's the interactions we're still learning about mm-hmm. is the interaction with all those microbes. What are they doing in the soil? Yeah. And it's just fascinating. Some bacteria, you feed certain bacteria and that actually acts as a soil binder. I mean, there's all these little neat interactions. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And when we talk about feeding the soil, Alexis, mm-hmm. like what kinds of things are we feeding it? Like as far as actual materials, yeah. So you you get that um, that very natural breakdown. So it, it, the easiest way to think about it is what's in a natural system. So you can think of it as a prairie, or I like to think of it as a forest because I like trees, right? Uh, in a natural system, your leaves fall down; they're breaking down. Uh, the worms are breaking them down first, and then you know it goes through this cycle and gets smaller and smaller until you're on that bacteria fungi. Uh, level and you're feeding them these organic substances. And in other cases, in farming, it could be something like compost, but it could also be something like roots, which is what we talk about with cover cropping, where we're essentially um, either tilling under those cover crops or somehow incorporating them back into the soil. But they're also feeding on like root exudates. Um, you know, the fungi are feeding on the plants that are then feeding the the microbes you know it's a big web right the soil food web as we call it nice. uh, and by it's feeding- a great term and lots of mm-hmm. lots of fun reading on that so remember that term folks. <laughs> if you're into nerdy things soil yes, food web that's a great topic. The world wide <laughs> web but not the soil food web <laughs> if you really like good puns there's a book uh, teeming with microbes t e a m but you know nice nice <laughs> of course there's a book on that of course <laughs> josh would know about there being a book on that soil so biology just letting, letting it's just cool <laughs> we're just letting things eat what they would be eating in normal decomposition right right in a yeah. typical more more yeah. natural or less human impact and system. one that thing seems to be the recurring theme of this discussion we t- we keep talking about like natural ecosystems and so we're trying to mimic what the diversity the chemical and biological diversity that's inherent in nature and and i guess that's the current theory of where we are in in soils and soil science isn't it isn't that kind of where we're at we're trying to more more closely mimic does. that yeah yeah, yeah. Or see those because you know soil essentially formed before we were here doing stuff and what we're trying to do is understand it to the point that mm. we can help it along in its processes. But, yes. but 
we still have people out there who are trying to grow stuff this yeah. season, right? Yeah. And right. Their soil's not not ready to ready to roll. And so, so correct me if I'm wrong. When we think about fertilizer recommendations, or we think about applying fertilizer, that's I'm talking about chemical synthetic fertilizers, or maybe an organically derived like a chicken litter or something like that. That stuff that we're talking about is on the menu for the plant to use mm-hmm. this yes. spring, this right. year, right? Sure. sure. That's like a factor of where the plant's at, getting it kind of the right nutrient at the right time in the right location. That's kind of the triumvirate of as far as managing immediate nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we get that question a lot from home gardeners. And one of the most common things that I refer people to is we have a home gardening manual here in Kentucky. And I constantly refer people to a little chart that, that says when to apply this amount of nutrients to this specific crop at this specific time, because all of these things are, yes, they're weather dependent, temperature dependent, but we have to get the nutrients uh, in the soil uh, with all of those factors in mind, we have to get it uh, when the plant, basically when the plant needs it, it needs to be available there as much as possible. It needs to be there and it needs to have enough moisture to be able to take it up. So I say this looking at you, blossom and rot people. Uh, so if you have blossom and rot, most likely you went to the store and they said, oh, here, you get a calcium spray and you spray it on the plant. Take it back. Don't spend your money on that. It's not not ideal. So your plant is actually not really going to take up that calcium through its leaves. Uh, it needs to take that calcium up through its roots, and it takes it up in that water solution. Remember I talked about that earlier. But it takes it up in that water solution. So if your soil test will tell you if you have enough available calcium. In Kentucky, 90% of the time we have enough available calcium, but what we don't have is enough water to be moved at at a regular intervals to be consistently feeding the plant calcium. And so you get blossom end rot and people see it after periods of drought because there's not enough consistent moisture. It doesn't have to be a bunch, just has to be consistent. Right. Yeah. I think that brings up a good point about water availability is that, you know, plants accessing these resources is contingent on water moving up through the plant column and pulling that through. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you got to kind of get it all right. And where, uh, you know, the initial question of how do you kind of maintain your soil? I think a lot of it is just kind of, you know, making sure you don't do something really wrong first and then allowing the system to kind of work for you. Like for instance, you know, when it's, when it's really wet out, don't till, don't compact your soil because that's going to really soil compaction. Harm, big, yeah, big it's going to really harm your water availability, water movement, all kinds of stuff. Stuff isn't going to grow there. You can see that on fields where this is the part we drive on, and you notice stuff doesn't really grow there. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're weeding. <laughs> is it easy to get that bad, that soil structure back, Josh? Once it's lost, at scale, absolutely not. <laughs> no. Yeah, it would be a real struggle. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're talking deep double digging is what people would do by hand. And Mm -hmm. anyway, it's not a fun time. So Mm. uh, one, uh, a moment's bad decision can create a lot of expensive labor down the road. We see that a lot with home gardeners. And I'll I'll pick on the home garden tillage equipment some that if someone's tempted in the springtime of the year to go out with a typical garden tiller and I'll go out with uh, some gizmo to test compaction layers and go out and use that. You can almost always find a compaction layer right at the depth where the tiller can till. So it's just like jackhammering at a certain level year after year. 
And if they've done no subsoiling or no deep tillage to break that up every four or five years, super common problem. And we see these roots that literally taprooted plants that go down and then make a 90 degree angle. And they say, why, why does this look weird? We've noticed this. Well, it hits a compaction layer and it's like trying to grow into concrete. So yeah, they've lost their soil structure and it's going to take years to scale. If it's a large mm. area, it's, it's, they may never get that back exactly the same. If it's a small scale area, they can obviously do some things more quickly. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And that, that kind of generation of like a hard pan can be something that's invisible to you unless you're bringing some kind of tool there to check first that sudden change in compaction. Absolutely. All right. So, We've wandered far astray because yeah. we all well, love soil. Well, no, it's summarized. Yeah, we're, we get excited. Yes. We want to talk about soil. Call I me. get the sense this isn't going to be the last time we talk about soil. <laughs> no. It's no, about the first in a 20-part series on soil. <laughs> Join us for horticulture. It's supposed to be about horticulture. It's just you nerds talking just, about soil. Just soil. So great. Okay, anyways, let me let me summarize this for people. And, you know, uh, you can you can skip. Don't skip the episode. But if you, if you needed a short suite to the point, Let's get there. So add on if anybody thinks of anything else. So one, learn your soil texture. You can do that through a ribbon test. You can you can do something, figure out kind of how your sand, silt, and clay. You can look it up um, on um, NRCS. You can, you can find it, right? Find your soil texture. Know a little bit about it. Understand what good and bad things about it. Know your soil nutrients. You can get this through a soil test from a lab. And so one thing um, – you know, with the extension, what we do with those lab numbers is we give you a recommendation. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, like you're not going to get just a bunch of numbers thrown at you and you go like, well, what do I do? I, do I go put 10, 10, 10 down? Do I, can I use poultry litter? You know, if you're not sure what you want to do, whether you're organic or not, in extension, we will give you that recommendation and help you, help you walk through those steps when, where, all that jazz. No Always want to increase your soil organic matter, whatever way you're going to do that. So think about, are you wanting to do compost? Um, Are you wanting to cover crop? And with that thought in mind, always keeping your soil covered. So we didn't exactly say that, but we kind of flirted around that idea of keeping your soil covered. So keep your soil covered with either a root of some kind, a living root. You can even tarp it, like using something like a silage tarp or putting something like mulch down, just something that it is not getting beat down with rain. So in some way your soil should be covered. And then think about what you're going to grow and know what that plant needs to thrive. And that can come back to that soil test. If you say, hey, uh, Ray, I want to grow blueberries. Well, blueberries are going to need something very different than asparagus or geraniums or something along those lines. And so we can help you with those more specifics uh, that way. But yeah, know your nutrients, know your soil texture, cover your soil Anything else? Kind of like those big, big things. One more, Alexis. What is it? Soil Don't call it dirt. It's not dirt. Don't call it dirt. <laughs> I like. Don't the call dirt. it dirt. I, I like it. Dirt is inside the house. Soil is outside. Yes, I like it. Perfect. <laughs> dirt under the rug. Thinking about soil health, like thinking about a lot of things, involves both considering the short term and the long term, mm-hmm. uh, and yes. Yes. balancing Perfect. those and understanding the impacts that each of those has on each other. And you but don't have you to be perfect. You yeah. just have to not till your soil when it's wet. Just like, be good. Exactly. Just like be <laughs> decent. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Well, I think that's it, you guys. Thank you uh, for joining us for Hort Culture, and we hope that you will join us for future episodes. Everybody have a great day.